Welcome to the Tech and Main Presents Podcast with your host, Sean St. Hill. Sean is the CEO of Tech and Main, a technology consulting firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Listen in as thought leaders share their tips and insights about what's going on in the world of technology. And now, here's your host, Sean St. Hill. Thank you for joining another episode of Tech and Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today's episode is brought to you by Tech and Main. Clients and employees are the top priority of a business. Protect the data of your top priority in three easy steps. Tech and Main can help you assess your cybersecurity posture, fix any errors, and help maintain your security program according to NIST and CIS standards. For more information, call our office at 678-575-8515. And now for today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a treat. We have with us Matt Mitchell. And for those of you that are not familiar with that name, Matt is a technology fellow with the Ford Foundation where he works with internal teams to develop digital security training, technical assistance offerings, and safety and security measures for the foundation's grantee partners. Matt is also the founder of Crypto Harlem. And before we get too far into stealing his thunder, I will ask Matt to say hello and introduce himself to the Tech and Main Presents audience. Hey, what is up, y'all? Such a fan of this podcast. It's so great to be here. So, yes, yeah, I mean, I would just introduce myself by saying, hi, that's it. That's all I got. All right. Right in, you know. <laughs> Let's get into it. Well, Matt, again, it's an honor to be talking to you. Uh, We connected um, early in the summer and you were just honestly one of the easiest people to connect with. It's just a quick aside. Typically, when I reach out to people on LinkedIn, there's a little bit of reticence around, well, you know, do I want to come on a podcast? What exactly that is that about? And honestly, you were just so effusive and welcoming and embracing of that idea. And I just really appreciate that. So I wanted to get that out there first off. Thanks. I appreciate Tech and Man. So, you know, I'm usually try to be available. I always tell myself, like, if I can't be there to answer a request to speak, to have a platform for my words, I mean, I'm honored at that invitation. That something's wrong. Also, I always ask myself, like, what have you done for Black folks today? What mm. have you done for Black folks this week? What have you done for Black folks this month? As a technologist, as a hacker, as a cybersecurity practitioner, as a human being, and what have you done for your community? What have you done for all people? What have you done for... And this, I, that's really how I hold myself. That's why I do the work I do. And I'm honored and lucky to do the work I do. Oh, that's, that's great. And so, Matt, again... Thank you for being with us on the podcast. And you touched a little bit on who you are, but why don't we you know, take some time to have you share your background with our audience? Yeah, sure. I'll keep it pretty short. Um, I started out my first job, at, like first like real big job. I was like, oh, it's an interview. I should get ready. Was what I thought was like an IT job and uh, at, a, at a very large corporation's like special facility where they came up with all their dream labs and new ideas. Uh, quickly... It was revealed that it was a surveillance job doing corporate surveillance where I was monitoring the um, employees who work on these sites and on other sites. And I didn't know that that was a thing. I did not know. They explained to me, no, it's in the employee agreement. They all signed it. Men have read it, but they all signed it. They've agreed to this. uh, You know, everything you're doing here, it's like legal. And it was really shocking. And it didn't really sit well with me. I got to tell you, it's so strange. You know, of course, some of this stuff with insider threat, classic cybersecurity stuff. 
But other things were a little bit on the, like, do you, you know, well, this person has that passport. Well, we have the different criteria for scanning their stuff. All these folks, we want to look for certain keywords. Anyone who has these keywords in their browsers or sites they visit or websites they went to or emails, like, it was a little intrusive, I felt. It's like, who am I to judge? I was just, you know, pulling the levers. I was like, I have to get out of here. It just bothered me so much. And my next job, I just put together a resume. Little did I know. The software I use, the keywords, the how we talked about those terms, same thing happened. Appeared to be a regular IT job, doing a certain thing, this time in a different industry. Uh, very, you know, these are all like Fortune 5 companies, very large companies, Fortune 10, Fortune 500, whatever. And uh, again, another surveillance job, another corporate surveillance job. I've quickly developed like quite a knowledge on how that stuff works, how that technology works. Fast forward to the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case. And, uh, you know, I was in the time of working at the New York Times as a data journalist. So we're like the coders who tell stories with our data and code and things that a normal reporter wouldn't be able to see or, or reveal or understand. We work with them or on our own to produce these stories. Anyway, I went to work and I was just, the hearing, the sentencing didn't happen. It was just like, this guy's not guilty. That's what's going to happen here. I was crushed. I didn't know what to do. I was devastated. There wasn't a lot of diversity on my team. So it was me and this other brother who I work with who were like at the cafeteria, like, hey, I don't know. I just feel like someone in my family passed away. It's, even if you were to ask me the day before, what was I expecting or how would I feel either way? I didn't expect what I felt. It was just, uh, it was really shocking. It really hit me really hard. The impact was really strong. I just thought about this young kid who looked like so many young kids I know, who looked like family and friends and people in my neighborhood in Harlem. And I thought about his family and, you know, they lived in nice place. He was just walking through, you know, it's just a really simple thing. And I thought, okay, I need to do something with this energy. Let me do something positive. And I doubled down on this crypto Harlem idea because I'm a computer hacker. I was like, you know what? I'll just do something about computer hacking. I'll talk about cybersecurity to the folks in Harlem. Also talk about technology and how technology affects them, how it happens to them, right? In that particular story, there was a neighborhood watch component to it. And so I was like, well, who is watching you? And what lenses are you seeing in? And how are you seen by me? And then how are you seen by other people? So some people might see you as potentially suspicious because of the color of your skin or the way you carry yourself. In this, in that particular case, there was quite a lot about the fact that he had a hoodie on. So I was like, if you wear a hoodie, let's say. And uh, Crypto Harlem was born. And I would love to tell you at our first Crypto Harlem, there was one person there. And, you know, that was all it was an empty room. And we just kept on growing from there. But from the first meeting it was packed like it was like people outside looking in and it's always been that way and we had it every month for several years and it's about you know i always tell people like crypto harlem's about teaching folks in marginalized communities marginalized people about the suspicion and the surveillance and the way technology is designed to happen to them but not with them and a part of you know it's not like the beautiful future that i want to see because when we can figure out what's going on there and when we can make changes there we could prevent a lot of different things. I often say, you know, Black folks, and I would say a lot of different marginals. People, I used to work around the world. So I see this, I'm like, oh, you're the Black folks of, you know, Ukraine. Oh, I see you. You're the, you know, there's just a certain treatment. There's an othering that happens. There's a level of suspicion that happens. And technology is used a lot of times in these places. But if we can stop the people who are living in this dystopian future, bring them into our normal present day, then we could stop that dystopian future from ever happening. It's like Terminator movies. You know, there are a lot of parts of this world and a lot of parts of the United States where you will not believe the way technology is being implemented and rolled out and the way that people are living and how it affects them. And it's an output in a way that like nobody wants, nobody would want this. And uh, I explain to people like how we got there 
I explain to them why this is happening to them. And also who put these things there, what they can do about it. How can they empower their community to try to push back on some of these things and, and circumvent them so they don't work. So um, that's what Crypto Harlem is. And now Crypto Harlem happens, like most things, on a live stream, like on Twitch. Most of the time in its, of its existence was a community center in Harlem, 125th Street of Manhattan, right around the corner from the, you know where everybody is selling shirts and caps and jewelry and chasing their dreams. That's really important to me. So anyway, yeah, that's that's what I do. And you know now I, I have a day job where I work in philanthropy, fighting inequality. So my day job and my outside of work, they're exactly the same. I'm so blessed to be able to help people, to be able to fight inequality, to push back against the negatives of technology. I love technology, like many of the listeners do. And to make sure that we think about how all the technology that we use and play with and you know whether it's for work, productivity, education, how it can be the dual use, the secondary use or tertiary use that really harms a certain person or community. And um, how just a very simple line of code or small changes, and, you know, a little bit of oversight, how it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to hurt anyone. So it's, it's funny and I'll deviate just a little bit, but you said something that reminded me of a conversation that I had earlier today. And it was a friend of mine. She's a journalist and an author and we get to connect every now and then. And so in our conversation today, she was asking me, you know, what's going on? What are you thinking? You know, and one of the topics that we landed on was how, when it comes to um, cybersecurity, data privacy, and how security impacts everyday folks, right? And the example that I gave was, you know, people that live in apartments and people that live in, you know, housing communities where you would think that their data would be a top priority and, Conversations that I've had with people that are in that industry actually indicate the exact opposite, right? That it's not really a priority or it's not really top of mind. And so I think there's a lot that can be said for the work that you're doing to have a love for technology, but not allow it to be too pervasive or too invasive. And then for people that are just, you know, living their lives and these apartment complexes and these other companies, the company that they use to pay their rent to, it would be good if there was something done to let that person know, hey, your data is safe. We protect it this way. Exactly. And let's talk about it, right? Like, for example, in New York, there's a community in Brooklyn called East New York. And in East New York, there was a building there. And, you know, it's it's a, a vibrant community, a lot of working poor folks, a lot of people chasing their American dreams, a lot of immigrants. And it's mostly Black folks in this community. And my uncle lives in East New York, right, um, in Brownsville. And in Brownsville, there's a city housing type of building, like, you know, in that building, people use key fobs. They used to buzz themselves in. Then the technology leveled up to key fobs, where you'd have a key and you just wave that key on this box and that would let you in. And then the landlord who owns the building is like, I want to upgrade it again and just implement a new technology for the doors when you come into the building, the main building, to the lobby. And this was facial recognition. And then people were like, oh, so how does that work? And like, oh, you just stare at the screen for like a second and then it'll let you in. And people were like, this doesn't feel the same. When we went from keys to buzzer codes and then to key fobs, right, it was less of a pushback, but like, what do you mean exactly? And they're like, well, if your face isn't a registered face who should be able to unlock door number 302 on the third floor, then it will not let you into the lobby. There's a couple issues here. Obviously, there's the issue of your personal freedom and liberty and being able to say, well, my grandson lives with me and 
I'm trying to, he just got back into New York or I got a cousin who was incarcerated and now lives in my living room or whatever, whatever it is, right? Like, right, right. Yeah, they would not be able to get in. Your face is being restored and recorded. And we know that facial recognition doesn't work well on certain people. It doesn't work on women well. It doesn't work on people with dark skin well. The darker you are, the harder it is for a camera to see you. And that's because the training data, the initial, this is what a face is, let's give you some faces to look at, didn't have faces that look like mine. And therefore the computer doesn't know that I'm a human, doesn't see me as a person, right? It kind of goes back to, you know, when we speak about equal rights and equity, one of the first things is like, I'm a human being, you're a human being, and there's certain inalienable rights. They're just like, we're all human, there's some basic human rights. Well, what happens when machines are deciding who's human and when they can't see some of us? Right. That's a problem. And then you have an issue where this person who runs the building can get sees you all the time. Like you don't see the person who's looking at you. Uh, the computer's recording all your faces, all the things you're wearing, who's around you, what's outside, all this other stuff. So yeah, obviously the community was like, well, what's going on with this? And how does this work? And where's the breakdown? And the people who own the building, the management company was like, look, we're doing it for your own safety, right? And the tenants there, uh, was more than 700 apartments in this particular and, you know, space are quite large. They push back and they won to a certain degree, I would say. But um, there are people who live in New York City, uh, NYCHA, we call it New York City Housing Authority, which is like the project, you might say. And their entire existence from the minute they wake up to when they walk around, hang out in the courtyard, go to work or whatever they do, play a game, hang out, shoot some ball, go back home, go to sleep. It's heavily regulated and watched because there's many layers of surveillance, right? Sometimes the surveillance is layered by different parts of the city or by different individuals and different organizations. And people maybe don't realize that there's so many layers there. But you go from being the network that you're on is watched, the video that watches you, the camera in your hallway, all these different things. And there's different rules and laws for people who exist in those spaces. It's not like this is, it's like, this is the United States, yes. But because this is a NYCHA building, there's certain rules about what you can and cannot do, like on a balcony, or, you know, it's kind of like, your apartment might have a lease, but it extends to a lot of open areas and there's some data uh, hooks there as well. So anyway, all to say, I believe that there should be the ability for people to say, you know what, I'm opting in for that. I would love the camera, use the facial recognition for me. I love the convenience, I got a bag of groceries, sure. But my neighbor can say, yeah, no, I want physical keys. I want physical keys, I'm old school, that's how it works for me. And I believe that we should have freedom to say which one you want and we should be educated on what will happen when we use one versus the other? If it's a snowy day and you have dark skin and you have a scarf on your face, will you not be able to get into your building, stay warm? You know, so I want us to be able to just have those conversations and also say, look, if this is being rolled out in all the buildings owned by this management company or just certain buildings and certain neighborhoods to certain people. And so, yeah, I just want to have those broader conversations because I believe if the layers of surveillance and technology that I would say are not privacy protecting technologies. If everyone is exposed to them at the same time in this country, like tomorrow, in a week or two, we'd have laws and regulations protecting all people. But what happens is only a few people here and a few people there and certain people in this other place. And um, these things build up in the corners. They build up in the margins, not in the main view. And eventually, when they're strong and huge, then they'll slowly get into the main view, but it'll be so hard to fight them. The momentum's already there. So why not just look into these places and let's hear these people, listen to what's happening to them and say, you know what? I don't think any American will be happy with this. And maybe we should talk about this and maybe we should either have this everywhere or nowhere. And I believe that if it was everywhere, it won't even last everywhere for too long because it's so um, like the pushback that I talk about, that human pushback on the facial recognition, 
every community, every people, every human being, every individual has a certain level. For example, I live in New York City and we have in restaurant dining to try to protect the restaurant industry. And the way that it works in New York, it's 20 to 25% of your business or something. You can have seats. So people just get rid of all the chairs and tables and leave like, you know, that one corner. Now, it also is, if you try to eat at one of these places, they say, oh, um, sir, for contact tracing, can I have your name? And then you're like, oh yeah, I guess. I mean, I need to be on the list to get into this restaurant because, you know, it's not easy to get that seat. And then they're like, can I have your number? You're like, sure, you need to call me. And then they're like, can I have your address? And you're like, wait, wait, wait why do you need my address? And you're like, well, we're not going to deliver this to you. It is, you are coming in, but we need your address. So if anything, we or you get sick, we can tell other people. And then you're like, and who are you eating with? We need their names, addresses, and phone numbers as well. And there's a line there. And there's a line depending on how old you are, depending on your previous experience, where you're just going to feel like I crossed my comfort line. And that is something that we need to examine because there's something really good about that line. It really protects us all from problems. <laughs> and uh, different communities have different ideas of where that line is. But a lot of people are living way outside of their comfort, way outside. They're thrust there. They're pushed there. And technology, which I love and use every day, has put them there. And that makes me feel sad because to me, technology is a beautiful thing. Technology allows a child in a small village in Egypt to play chess, a child in a small village in Africa, and they're all learning English from their friend in Chicago. Like, that's technology, right? And it's every answer you've ever needed in a piece of plastic that you put in your pocket. And all the music in the world and all the videos in the world and, you know, no limits, no limitations, right? That's what excites me about it. But it also is, and we can't act like it's not a lot of horrible things. And so my mission is to make technology friendly, happy, great, but not by ignoring the bad, by really figuring out how we can isolate and contain the bad, because it's always there, right? And if you build a technology and you're not thinking, I built something bad, re-examine your technology. Agreed. So Matt, that's actually a nice little segue into how exactly did you initially get involved in technology? Well, let's see, my parents are from the Caribbean and we're, we're, we're immigrants here. So I'm like, um, you know, we're American now, but none of us were. My mom is from the island of Trinidad. My dad's from the island of Grenada. They met in the UK. There's a really cool documentary series, um, The Small Axe, I think is what the series is called, and by Steve McQueen. And I think it's on Amazon. I'm not trying to plug it, but it tells our story of our very unique experience. There's many, many folks like us out there. And growing up, I had a computer wheeled out. It was the school's computer, one computer for the entire school. So it's like, here's our school computer. And I was like, this is amazing. You know, my dad worked in the train yards working on things and he would bring home parts and take them apart. And I'd watch him and take apart my toys while I'm watching him. Then he put his stuff back together and my toys were still laying pieces. But I learned a lesson there, you know. And I was fascinated that inside everything is something else that makes it work. And I was like, what's inside this computer? There's no gears making these words that I type show up. Like, how does this work? And uh, I was mystified and I really wanted one. So for Christmas, I said, I want a computer. And my folks got me um, a magazine subscription to Compute. was a computer programming magazine at the time. I guess they thought like, it's like fishing. You just need a magazines and pictures of fishing and you're excited. But it was like really frustrating to have like lines of code. I had no computer, right? It talked about all the new advances in these like computers that I didn't have. It just fed my hunger to learn. I made a uh, computer keyboard on a piece of cardboard and just pretended I was typing on it. I would beg, borrow, steal anything like, to get a second on a friend's computer. So people in the neighborhood, I was like, I'll do your homework and you'll give me five minutes on your dad's business computer. When I did get on a computer, my friends would be like, what are you doing? How do you do that? And I was like, oh, I thought everyone knew how to do this. And they were like, no. So I was advanced because I was kind of like refused to be held back. And that ingratiated me with these kids who were like, 
you know, you can get these games, you can have all these different things. And I was like, well, how do you get all that software? It must be expensive. Computers at the time were thousands and thousands of dollars, like, you know, so, and software was insanely expensive, especially games. And they were like, oh no, you could just take them. And I was like, you what? And they were like, yeah, there's these weird sites on the bulletin board because it's pre-internet. And I was like, wait, this is crazy. So I have a strong, um, like I have a strong ethical compass and like folks ingratiated, kind of like granted upon me. So I was like, yeah, no, stealing stuff is wrong, no matter how you do it. And I'm an empath. So when you fall and hurt yourself, like I don't laugh, I immediately want to make sure you're okay. And these are career ending injuries for a criminal hacker. But um, I did go to 2600 meetings because that happened here on Long Island where I grew up. And I would go to these meetings, they would be held in like, you know, just random public places. So like, I think there was like a meeting at like a a Dunkin' Donuts or like a McDonald's or something. Usually it would be like at a corporate park, like a glass enclosed, you know, public space, whatever. But they'd be like, okay, what's your name? And my person would be like, yeah, I'm Computer Boy 3000, you know? And I'm like, oh, that's not how I thought you would look. You know, someone's like, you know, I'm Electric Girl, you know, those ridiculous hacker top handles. And I was like, well, first of all, why would you want people to know your name if you're a hacker anyway? But then they would skip over me because they thought I was just there to get a burger or a donut. They didn't realize I was there for the meeting. So, because it's like, you don't look like what we thought the person who comes to these things is. Um, but then I thought, this is cool. I get to be like a spy. Like I get to be like a fly on the wall here and right. absorb all this info. And this is mad corny anyway. Like this is not what I thought I'd signed up for, but I'm really interested here. So I just absorbed. And I thought, you know what? I need to protect people from those hackers. And that's how I got into it. I thought, you know, the 2600 crew, you know, some of them are chill, but especially the kids I was in school with, many of them were like moving on to like tricking people, like vishing stuff or calling people up and like getting information and using their bank accounts and stuff like that, stuff like that. So I would use their computers and like help them like stay digitally safe. And, you know, just like it was the beginnings of um, cyber, the cyber, cyber security. I mean, when I was growing up, cyber crime was definitely there. It was definitely like, here's how you do it. There wasn't this idea, like this is how you protect systems and computers. Like it's still burgeoning industry. So even when I was working in surveillance, we didn't have like, the same type of security team as we envision it today. We didn't have like blue team, red team, purple team, pen test. And it was different. It was very different. I would almost say like, it's almost better now because there's some ideas on what's right and what's wrong and how you should do it, how you shouldn't do it. So yeah, it was a lot more wild west back then, I would say. That's how I got into this and I've never left it. I've always been doing this work. And I've worked in, I've worked in manufacturing. I've worked in uh, military contracting. I've worked in, startups. I've worked for big internet companies. I've worked for the airline industry for several years. Like, you know, when, when you love computers and everything is built on computers, you could be anywhere. So right. you just follow your, your other interests. Uh, you know, I got lucky. Like, you know, my friends were into stamp collecting, less so. That didn't turn into a big thing. You know, you can't really make too much on that unless you make it big. So, um, yeah, I was lucky that my little weird hobby turned into an industry and uh, a method of employment and kind of how the world runs. You shared what is obviously a passion. And we talked a little bit about digital privacy earlier. I want to go back to digital privacy for a moment and just, you know, have you share what makes you so passionate about digital privacy? Sure. Well, first I will say like many folks who probably listen to this are big on security. When they know cybersecurity, it does not mean, you know, privacy. It, you could have zero privacy understanding and that's okay. But just own that. Just understand that they're not related whatsoever. So, you know, like some people work out, but they don't do their legs. Like same thing. They're not the same thing. You know, so leg day is privacy. You know, so um, privacy is important to me because I've seen what happens when it goes bad. Like, you know, I mentioned that my folks are from the Caribbean and 
you know, one of the things that happened when my family's over here was the, uh, there was like a military action against this Caribbean island, Grenada, that my dad is from, right? So, remember that. Uh, yeah, there's a Netflix movie, The House on Coco Road, if anyone really wants to nerd out and learn more about it, a family perspective that was impacted by it. But it was interesting for me because I, I was seeing, I was seeing a lot of things like the breakdown of privacy, right? <laughs> uh, and what happens when you're, you don't have those rights anymore, when you don't have the right to be seen and not to be seen anymore. One thing I'm passionate about privacy is for, I always say this, you know, like if I was to offer you a million, multi-million dollar mansion in the best neighborhood in the United States and a, a beautiful car and you get the car, we bring it to you now, you drive to the mansion and you realize it's made out of glass. Everything's like glass. No, the walls are completely glass. There's no shades on anything and there's no doors. You might just move back home. You don't want that place, right? Privacy is important. Privacy is really important. And it's important because if you buy an apartment or, you know, you get a new place, the first thing you do is you get shades for the windows, right? Because when you walk out that bathroom after your shower, you know, whether you're wearing a towel or not, you're like, no, shades. For some reason, that comfort line that I spoke about earlier, something just tells you, I need to cover that window and I need to pull it when I want it, but I need to cover it when I don't want it, right? That's a very human feeling. And then you might change the locks. You're like, well, I'm going to change the lock on that door or I'm going to add something to that door, right? Because other people might have the key. So I'm, I might change the lock on that door. If you had no door, you'd be like, I want a door there. But why do you want that door there? I would say this, having a door allows you to open it to your neighbor. Having a door allows you to say, you're welcome in my home. I trust you to this new level. Let me show you this part of my life that I don't show all people. We're all complicated. And the person you are in front of your romantic partner is probably not the same version of you that shows up at work. It's probably not the same version of you that's at the hangout spot, you know, or, you know, and it's not the same version. You're just like chilling with your friends. It's not like you're lying. It's not like you're changing, but we're, there's many aspects to ourselves. And to a few people, we show even more, right? These extra levels. Having privacy allows you to have those things and allows you to choose what you show and what you don't show. It allows you to say, hey, you know what? Like in early civilization, it's hard to survive and food is scarce, but I'm going to break bread with you. We're going to share these resources in front of this fire. We're together. And it just said, like, I'm opening up to you. And with no privacy, there is no option to choose. There is no option to, to control who you open the door for and who you don't. And a lot is taken from you. A lot of your agency is taken from you. And a lot of who you are is taken from you. And I've seen that. And, I've, you know, I worked for a private security firm doing, like, kind of um, electronic stuff, a lot of surveillance work, but, like, on the protect you from surveillance side. Uh, and also training on digital security. How can... You know, I would work with like the best investigative reporter in some African nation. Like, you know, when you're chilling in uh, drinking a latte from Starbucks in air conditioned room, everything works. All the tech works. But when you're sitting, you know, at this person's home, uh, drinking, uh, you know, some some water with them and, you know, eating, eating some food that their their wife made for you or something, you're, you're finding a lot of stuff doesn't work. A lot of stuff is designed is a Western mind point, but a lot of things need to be, you know, in, lined up a certain way. A lot of it doesn't work. And how do I protect this individual? That was my job. Like, how do we get you where you need to be? And I work with a lot of different organizations, keeping good people safe in different parts of the world where you see like, wow, privacy is taken as a way to control you, as a way to, as a way to strip you of your humanity. The way that you act when you're always being suspected, when you're always being watched, when parts of what you say can always be listened in on is so different. You know, we talk about that panopticon. And I, I say with that, it's very real. And nobody deserves that. So that's why I'm such a big 
advocate for privacy. I, it's not like locks and shields. I always hate those visuals. You know, it's more like, you know, umbrellas and, you know, welcoming customs and things like that, you know, like safety and, and things like that. So that's what privacy means to me. And I hope that, hope that uh, resonates with some of your listeners. No, that, it, well, it certainly resonates with me. And so we touched on it a little earlier, you know, as far as um, surveillance and, you know, communities of color. But what concerns you the most about the surveillance that's taking place in those communities of color? So for me, I think of it like this. I never liked to watch people get bullied because there's a certain like shame they have that's almost like, well, this doesn't happen to everyone. It only happens to me. Why is it happening to me? Like, why me? So the way that these negative impacts of technology are happening, they happen in quiet ways, in silent ways that make the person feel like it's their fault. And that always bothered me. I like this future that's like a happy-go-lucky Star Trek future. All these different people. I mean, in the 60s, having like Black folks, white folks, Russians, you know, aliens, all in the same thing, just searching out and discovering what's next in the universe. That's a beautiful utopian vision. I always was uh, as cool as Mandalorian and Star Wars is, that's kind of like an overpowering, overbearing kind of like fascist entity and a, a small group of people just trying to fight back in a sliver, right? For a little breathing room. It's a scary future. And uh, we live in a world where there's some futures for some people and another future for others. And that always bothered me. Because people of color, there a lot of them are having that other future. For example, in New York, you know, we have this COVID-19 global pandemic, especially affecting folks in the United States. People have to figure out a way to do things. The American Bar Association is like, well, how are we going to make lawyers? They have to take a bar exam. It's a, literally a test you take. You got to show up, show your ID. You know, there's a proctor. All that's gone. So they connected with the testing technology team and came up with a way that you could take your bar exam from your home, like Zoom kind of thing, you know, like video conferencing. Pretty cool. But here's the thing. A lot of Black prospective soon-to-be lawyers are finding that te technology is like, you cannot leave the room. We need to make sure you're there. They couldn't see them. It was like, you're not there. You're going to fail this test. And then they're like, wait. So they would call, you know, they had like a setup software, right? So the setup software is like, I don't see you. So they would call customer support. Customer support's like, take a lamp. You're like, okay, uh-huh. Okay, aim it at your face. Okay. Now does it see you? And it's like, yeah, it sees me now. Okay, take your test like that. That was the fix. So that's horrible. And it, why does that happen? Now, it happens, and you might like, you know, a lot of these things, it's like, well, you could almost just like, well, nobody must have tested it on anyone. Well, then how does software go from development, you know, to quality assurance, staging, production, and then get shipped with no one realizing that that's a bug in it? And it's because you weren't thinking about all people. You were thinking about some people. And when you were testing the faces, they weren't fed all people's faces. They were fed some people's faces. So now we're building systems where some people are real and some people don't exist. And that's not good. And unfortunately, a lot of people who are negatively impacted, technology is happening to them, are people of color, right? Because we have issues with, you know, we over-index on, on cell phones, right? Like we have more phones than, than your average American. We love using all these things. We innovate on these technologies, like the Black Twitter, saving Twitter, right? when it was only people from South by Southwest using it, right? So what happens though is we consume a lot of tech and it's designed for us to have these tools that allow us to consume tech as people of color, especially black folks. But we don't have the ability necessarily to create tech. We don't have the ability to code that tech. And while we're innovative, like you can take, you know, a piece of broken music equipment, like a record player and turn it into a billion dollar genre of music uh, and make hip hop. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. But you got to allow us 
the space to be part of this future and a positive part of this future, not a negative part of the future. And so that's what I want to see. And I love when it happens. And I love when it works. And I always love raising up technologies that are doing these things, that are, care about usability. You know, if I make a video, I'm like, I need to make sure I have captions on this video. I don't want to leave someone behind because they're visually impaired or, or hearing impaired. I need to make sure that a screen reader can view my site and explain it to someone. Because what if a version of me out there, he or, or her or they can't experience this tech? I don't want them to be left behind. I love tech. And that's what we all need to hold on to. So there, there's this idea of inclusivity. And there's another idea, which is like privacy. And there's another idea that's security. And I live on the intersection of these three things. Okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And Matt, it's, it's interesting because, you know, what you're talking about, people are hearing artificial intelligence and AI is having its moment. And this is one of the very things that AI is dealing with where, okay, it recognizes some people, but not all. And so to your earlier point about going into a building or just doing a normal activity. Yeah, using if, a soap dispenser, you know, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always work depending on what color your hands look like, right? Exactly. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's much to be said about that topic. I want to find out from you, what do you think it will take for us to have, or do you think we will ever have a national law on par with CCPA? I think it's just a matter of time. I think we're going to have something like CCPA. We already have, like, it's weird, you know, we have 50 states in this country. That means, uh, in, in the, for folks who are from in the U.S. side, and that means there's 50 laws on privacy and on technology. And, you know, in places like in the EU, they can have like, hey, we're all these countries will come together with some basic protections. Thanks to Germany and a lot of the privacy advocates there, there's the GDPR, there's, they have the general data protection regulation. And we will have that because every time tech goes wrong in one of these horrible ways, the impact is felt by, I mean, it's devastating. You could lose your life. You could become, you could be imprisoned. You can, I mean, it's, some of these things you can laugh and say, oh, weird. That's a weird little thing that happened. Other things is not so laughable, right? Um, you know, your self-driving car drove into you because it couldn't see you, right? Things like that will start happening. And then we'll eventually start seeing different laws in different states until there's a federal law. It's just a matter of time. What I hope that is we get there without too many negative consequences, right? We don't, when you look at the United States and you say, oh, it's so good that we have this regulation or this law. Well, why do we have it? Well, that's because unfortunately there are a lot of negative things that happen. And people had to pay high prices, huge costs, and their families paid huge costs for these things to be enacted in laws, right? So a lot of the protections come as trying to correct from tragedies. And so I hope that we'll get there. And I, I'm an optimist. And also as a technologist, I study stuff constantly. I know that we are going to get there. We're, we're, it's already the writing's on the wall. It's just a matter of how soon can we get there. And hopefully with how little cost can we pay to get there in a much better place? I look forward to that day. Look forward to that day. I mean, there's groups that I really love. Um, like there's a movie called Coded Bias, which I definitely would recommend. It's about AI. And uh, I'm not sure like how you get to watch it, but it's definitely streaming somewhere. You might have to like buy an actual virtual movie ticket or something. Um, there's groups like um, Data for Black Lives, Black and AI, the Algorithmic Justice League, which are you know heavily um, portrayed in that movie, Coded Bias. They're data scientists, researchers, experts in the field, uh, AI Now does a lot of work on this as well, another organization, who are saying we're noticing these things and now is the time to start fixing them before it gets to a point we're too late. You know, like a lot of times we want to use computers to right wrongs. Let's say like, we know that hiring can be biased and discriminatory. Let's have a computer go through 
resumes and try to find all the best candidates. But then, you know, this is a real case where a computer was going through resumes and it somehow learned that women don't get hired because of previous data that it was receiving. And it was like weighing down anyone who has a name that could be seen as a woman. So, all right. So if you self-identify as a woman and you went through this AI that was designed to fight bias, it was actually using historic data to, you know, imply and, and, and impart discriminatory tactics upon you. So we have to be really careful when we say, well, I see that this could be wrong. So the best way to solve it is to have a robot do it. Well, whose robot? With what code? And we also, it's harder, like, you know, you, I come from software engineering backgrounds. I can like write code. I can read code. Not everyone can do that. And it's, it, you need to be able to read it before you can tell someone this is what's wrong with it, right? You need to be able to have, these are good examples of de uh, design patterns of good code. And these are mistakes you can make before you can, well, someone's like, hey, okay, look, how am I going to fix it then? You have to have an answer. So these are groups that have answers. I, I like to tell people answers all day, but let me. <laughs> uh, the things that we can do to safeguard ourselves, our communities, and those most at risk, you know, like, you know, things like COVID, we're always looking at who's most at risk because we're, most people in the world, I would say, and definitely in the U.S., we're people who say like, well, you know what, you're someone who's in a, in a high risk group. We should get you that vaccine sooner or we should get you that protection sooner. But we don't do that for data protection. Not yet. We need to. Oh, that's excellent point. Matt, what's the best advice you've ever received? I would say the best advice is what allows me to absorb all this advice, which is that feedback is a gift. And um, I love hearing from other people. And I love also being in a room with people who do not understand or they don't agree with me or they, they hold the opposite viewpoint as myself. Because that's where I can't just get away with lazy anecdotes and, well, you know how this is. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't happen there. You know, like you have to have the numbers to back it up. You have to have the testimonial and the real anecdotal stories of individuals, but also show that, you know, historically the trends line in this direction, I really make an airtight case. Like, so people who are like my biggest haters they're so valuable to me because I know that if I could change their mind a little bit, if I could get them to be like, mm, I see where you're coming from, then we can, we can win, right? And I always know that as long as our number one adversaries are human beings, there's hope, right? We're not fighting Skynet yet. So there's hope for a lot of positive change. And I live a hopeful life. I just absorb and hold on to all that. So these are the things that really make me. Those are the, the advice. All those things were a different piece of advice that I've received and held on to and allowed me to be who I am. Okay, great. All right, so we're going to run through some favorites. Favorite musician or band? Oof, that changes like on the regular. I'm trying to think of something that is uniquely Matt. I don't even know today. I don't even know today. I would say, who was I just listening to on the radio? I was just listening to, um, uh, what's her name? She's a hip-hop artist from, from Harlem. But because I can't remember her name for no reason, I'm going to just say... Oh, okay. So here's an, here's an obscure one. I grew up listening to hardcore punk music and this band Cypher is my favorite band. I always put them on I get amped. It's not the most accessible music, but if you like punk music, we're not Cypher. They have a great message. And I listen to a lot. Other than that, I like to listen to a lot of hip hop from Harlem because it kind of it brings me back to like the people. I always right. want to make sure I can speak to them. So there's always a people on the, young on the come up, like a lot of new artists I really like, but I'm spacing right now because, you know, I'm in meeting mode. Hey, that's that's fair. That's fair. All right. A favorite hobby or pastime? I like watching mixed martial arts, which is kind of bizarre, I guess. It's not, not to do with anything. And I like to play video games. I'm trying to think things that I'm doing nowadays. And I like to get outside, but I'm not a naturalist. You know, I'm learning how much like, hiking is challenging. 
But nowadays, I just like to be outside and just like, just like recenter myself. I guess like meditation, right? So boom, mixed martial arts, video games, meditation. You know, I'm a classic nerd, like comic books, all that stuff. Like, okay. you know, guilty as charged, you know, like that's, I'm pretty basic. Okay, great. And pre-COVID, where would you say would have been a favorite vacation spot? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm lucky in that my day job and my uh, life's work both allow me to travel quite a lot around this world. So there are very few places I have not been. I, of course, love going to the Caribbean because it reminds me of my folks. And, you know, I saw this little kid. He had a pillow with two sandals stapled on each corner of the pillow. So it looked like feet. And that was his doll, like his teddy bear. But to him, you know, that's the thing. Human beings are so resilient. That was like his imaginary friend or whatever. But to me, I was just like, oh, that's all he has. Like, that's all they could make for him was some flip-flops on a pillow. But yeah, I love the Caribbean. I love the, like, quote-unquote, like, developing world, Global South, I guess. So I love going to African nations. I love going to India. I'm really, I love Japan. I love China. Taiwan is really cool. So those are spots that I would love to go back to. I've gone to those places several times. I would love to go back to. Uh, London is a special place to me. But yeah, you know, that's pre-COVID. That's where I would love to go. And soon as travel is safe again, that's, those are the places I would love to visit. I just feel great. You know, you get to vote with your dollar and like help a local economy. You get to see a different slice of the world. You get to go off the beaten path. And, you know, these are places that all resonate powerful things for me. Okay, great. And who are you following, Matt, that you would say is innovative? Other than you, sir? Other than, oh. you know, yeah, you know, like, come on, you know? I don't know. Like, there are some people who are innovative. Um, I will try to think... Let's see. I got my partner in crime, Sarah Aoun, who's a Lebanese hacker who does a lot of work for a community. I always like to learn from what, what she's doing and what she's posting. That's always good. I mean, I'm lucky enough to work at Ford Foundation. We have so many grantees that we support in that philanthropy. And, you know, these directors and CEOs and executives, these nonprofits and NGOs and civil society orgs, they're heroes. They're just, it's amazing. I mean, I read about comic book superheroes. They are those living people living. So, I think those people are really amazing to me and inspire me, you know. I mean, the people who do things like what you're doing, you know, like I escape through your podcast and the content that's created that's, you know, just gets voices out there and give people a platform, especially in these times. It really, really helps me a lot. Like, so I I would say like those content creators, like um, other than yours, I listen to uh, Colors of InfoSec. I listen to, I mean, I listen to so many. I don't want to, I don't want to list them because I'll leave somebody out and then I'll be, They'll be mad. They'll be like, yo, Matt, real talk. Like in my DMs, they'll be like, you left me out. How'd you forget? So right. I don't want to forget anyone, but uh, I would just say that they get me through the day. And so I have to raise up those folks. I do a lot of research. So I love reading like, um, like there's a book, Dark Matters by Simone Brown. I really loved that book. It's just great research. I always go back to it. I read it cover to cover, but I also go back to it for reference. Um, it talks about the surveillance of Black folks and the history of surveillance, Black folks. And any of these books that are on, um, surveillance, I think, are really good. I, I mean, there's also a long list that I'm afraid to list because I'll forget someone. So I'll just say, I only listed one and it can't be bad. I will send you, if you care to, to check some of these things out. But there's a lot of folks who are really watching out for us on our privacy and our security and on having a positive, beautiful future for all people. And I love reading their research and their works. Well, Matt, I will definitely take you up on sending that list and we'll be sure to have that in the show notes. And, you know, I'll definitely keep that uh, for my personal reference as well. But Matt, we've come to the end of our time together and I cannot thank you enough. It has been an honor. Um, we'll have to do this again, for sure. I hope so. I hope, hey, listeners, if you want to hear me again, please reach out. Let them know. Let the podcast know. Let Sean say, Sean, we want to hear Matt again. But 
Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for the slice of your time. Everyone who's listening and tuned into this. I appreciate you. And no matter what you're doing or how you're doing it, just try to find a way to do something good. And if you make tech, try to figure out what bad it might be doing or who you might be leaving out. So that's that. Again, Matt, thank you so much. Before we go, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, I have an article on Medium. It's called How to Reach Matt Mitchell Privately or How to Reach Matt Mitchell Securely. And it has every possible way you could reach me. And I have all those things already set up. I love being able to get back to people, you know? So I even, like, I have an admin who helps me get back to people. So I really will get back to you. Probably not fast, but I'll get back to you. I'm on Twitter. So at uh, Gemini and then I, Matt, you can hit me up on Twitter. I've got open DMs. I love connecting out to people and sharing resources with folks. And, you know, you make me better. So that's, that's that. Okay. Well, Matt, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And again, we will do this another time. Uh, we'll get with Raven and, you know, get on your yeah. calendar to do they it. Get on the calendar, do it. Absolutely. Tegame Presents family, thank you as always for listening and be sure to tune in next time. We will have another expert share their wisdom. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to another episode of Tech and Main Presents. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends. And thanks for being a part of the Tech and Main Presents community.